Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 183, Stambuliski and the Young Turks. No new patrons, because I just recorded the last episode. I'm doing these quite a bit ahead of time compared to usual because I'm off to Japan in a few days. But in the meantime, I have a quick mistake to correct. So I mentioned this last in the last episode, kind of off the top of my head as I was reading it. But a listener pointed out to me, uh, Dmitry Bechev, thank you very much, that I misstated the name of the village of that massacre, which triggered, triggered the kind of uh, backlash against Greeks in Bulgaria. I said Zagoritsa, but it's Zagoricene, I think that's the pronunciation, uh, also known as Valisiada. Again, I'm hoping I'm getting that right. So apologies for getting that name wrong, just to, you know, FYI there. And with that, let's get into things. Last time, we saw the assassination of Prime Minister Dmitry Petkov, a short-lived interim government, and ultimately the reins being handed over to new Prime Minister Alexander Malinov and the centrist Democratic Party. The ultimate demise of the Stambulovist party came largely from its failure to resolve the Sofia University crisis created by Ferdinand trying to take control of institutions after students threw snowballs at him. In its final months, that government also reduced the ability of both white-collar professionals and teachers to participate in politics as a part of a kind of larger uh, kind of movement by the government to reduce the ability of lots of elements of society to participate in politics, and kind of to make sure no one, no kind of new areas could rise up and kind of go against the government, just basically a, a kind of autocratic move. A lot also happened to Prince Ferdinand personally. His mother died, and he finally remarried. Now, many believe that the loss of his mother as a political ally and confidant would hurt Ferdinand greatly, but his new wife also seems exceptionally well-suited to step into that role. So, we'll see. Finally, Ferdinand mended relations between Bulgaria and Austria-Hungary, potentially creating an opening for the status quo in the Balkans to finally change. And that brings us to March of 1908. Around the middle of the month, the right-wing faction of the MRO met for a congress in the Kustendil region. Once again, the attendees argued, or that, well, yeah, basically argued that uh, this was a general congress for the entire MRO, even though the left wing had no representatives present and obviously disagreed. Crucially, though, this was the first time either faction had met since the murders of Sarafov and Garvanov about four months earlier. Ultimately, this Congress decided to sentence all the leaders of the left faction of the MRO to death in absentia, including Sandansky. This meeting is generally given, referred to sort of, as the official end of the MRO as we know it. Because, well, in many ways, I mean, besides the assassinations, it really marks the final, final point of no return for the two sides. I mean, once one side declared that, you know, all the leaders of the other side should be put to death, the, the, that pretty much closes the door on any potential reconciliation. The right faction at this point reformed itself into what we'll call, well, it called the Macedonian Odrin Revolutionary Organization. So I'll refer to this as the MORO. This new organization essentially kept the same goals as the right-wing faction it replaced, unsurprisingly. 
that is, to keep in touch with and receive material support from the Bulgarian government in order to fight for the independence of Macedonia, while crucially not committing to anything concrete vis-a-vis the Bulgarian government. So, for example, not committing to Macedonia as an independent state, ultimately joining Bulgaria. Now, about two months after this Congress, the left wing held its own Congress in Bonsko to decide how they should proceed. There, it was argued that the rise of Greek and Serbian armed groups and the accompanying violence and chaos in Macedonia was the fault of the Bulgarian state and the former right-wing faction of the MRO, which they argued served the Bulgarian state. Now, the biography of Jan Sandansky, written by Marsha McDermott, which I've mentioned before, argues that all this was driven by a desire of Bulgaria's new capitalistic class to take Macedonia's resources and exploit them. And now, you know, the uh, grain of salt here is that McDermott was a committed communist and very close to Bulgaria's communist regime, so it's hardly surprising that she uses a kind of Marxist framing and analysis to understand this issue. Now, frankly, although I see the value of kind of Marxist framing to understanding a lot of historical topics, but here I think it's a bit silly. I, I don't find it very believable that Bulgaria's nascent capitalist class frankly, still barely getting off its feet, was already focused on expanding into Macedonia just to exploit its people and resources when, you know, they were still, you know, just just starting to get some labor backlash and things within Bulgaria. But, you know, to me, this is that that kind of, you know, when you've decided that there's a certain framing that you're going to use for all of history, then you just sort of have to find a way to put that square peg into a round hole no matter what. And it ultimately comes across as quite odd. Um, But This is the kind of framing that became common in a lot of sources written during Bulgaria's socialist period in the 20th century. So it's not the first time I've seen it. It's not the first time we're going to discuss it. So, though, you know, kind of taking some elements of her analysis here seriously, though, was Bulgaria at the time anti-democratic? Yeah, I think quite clearly. Both Ferdinand and the Stumbelovist party that was so recently in charge were very interested in spending lavishly on the army with the goal of creating a greater Bulgaria, while simultaneously, as we've talked about, particularly last time, trying to limit ways in which, you know, journalists can, say, criticize the government or people can organize or affiliate politically within a lot of kind of white-collar or educational institutions. However, pinning the aims of, uh, you know, particularly the army trying to create a greater Bulgaria on a desire for economic exploitation via this Marxist interpretation, again, I think kind of strains credulity. I, I think, um, well, yeah, at this moment in capitalism, again, Bulgaria is just very early on in that process. You know, McDermott rightly points out that there was essentially no real regulation of factories and that workers were treated very poorly in Bulgaria at this moment as a result. Again, this is why we're seeing such a fast rise of a variety of workers' movements. But attributing Bulgaria's aim of liberating and then uniting with Macedonia to capitalistic greed instead of a nationalistic desire to recreate San Stefano Bulgaria feels a bit like hearing hoofbeats and assuming it's a zebra, which frankly is kind of an ironic thing to say right now because a few days ago I saw a zebra escape from a zoo in South Korea and was running around the streets, but you know, you get the idea. So, McDermott views the left-right split in the MRO as an extension of that conflict between Bulgarian capitalistic work or capitalistic classes and Bulgarian workers. But I clearly don't really agree. I think the left faction was obviously very influenced by the increasingly popular left-wing ideas, you know, socialistic ideas. I've talked about how the left-wing faction, the MRO, 
you know, entertained notions of a Balkan Federation um, and were, you know, willing to work with movements in other countries because they wanted to create a Macedonia that didn't really distinguish based on religion or ethnicity. And so, yeah, the, the, there was a lot of that influence. Um, by contrast, the right-wing ideas were approached with more, you know, traditionalism and, and kind of nationalism. And I think those differences go a pretty far way towards explaining their conflict without having to resort to the kind of, you know, economically driven political theories that uh, that Marxism is kind of bringing into this. Granted, I'm not a specialist in, in kind of applying Marxist theory or understanding these things. This is just my kind of understanding. But anyways, oh, uh, actually, quick other thing. You know, it's, it's interesting also to note that Marsha McDermott just died a few days ago. Uh, I was curious. I was reading her book here a lot, and all of a sudden people started bringing her up and asking if I read her books and things, and I was wondering why, and that is why. So, you know, she, she did write quite a few books in English about Bulgarian history in the mid-20th century. And, you know, to me, her, her contribution and her legacy is quite mixed because those books were, you know, are very detailed resources. And there's nothing, for the most part, quite like them available in English. You know, biographies of Sandansky, Vasilevsky, on and on. But uh, as in the example I just gave, she occasionally veers into this kind of left-wing Marxist analysis of, of history that I think strains credulity and kind of hurts the overall impact of her work. So, you know, it, it makes me question her judgment in other things and, and to what extent she is kind of bringing analysis because that's what she genuinely believes or because she has to analyze things in a certain way to kind of back up an existing worldview. But anyways, getting back to that Bansko Congress itself. At the Congress, the left wing of the MRO decided that because they felt the split in the MRO was basically the fault of Prince Ferdinand because they thought he was kind of the puppeteer pulling the strings of the right wing faction, they decided that they should kidnap and ransom him. Though other events quickly kind of basically led to this plan being abandoned. It, it soon was like, okay, they had bigger fish to fry, we can say. But it was also at this point that the left and right wing factions, as we've seen, began to sort of openly fight with one another. So besides that, you know, basically the right wing faction uh, sentencing all the left wing leaders to death, now you actually had some kind of Chetty-like organizations fighting and shooting at each other. Though the first encounter did end without bloodshed, but still... We've now entered a point where the two factions, or maybe former factions, are openly fighting. But aside from all that uh, MRO fighting, it was also election season. Now, it had been five years since Bulgaria's last election, which is the largest gap up to this point in Bulgaria's history. You know, most of the time it's like maybe two years between elections. Now, in that previous election, the Conservative People's Party won a huge outright majority, the first for any of the conservative parties. However, as I mentioned, Prince Ferdinand never appointed a prime minister from the People's Party despite their huge victory, so they never really got a chance to govern. Now, remember, elections at this point, honestly, they can feel a little pointless because, you know, Ferdinand and whichever party is in charge usually has a lot of leverage and a lot of influence on the outcome. And yet, despite that, whatever the outcome actually ends up being, Ferdinand just sort of appoints whoever he wants as prime minister. So again, you might have a party win, you know, 4% of the seats and they're given the chance to govern um, without having to kind of form a coalition and things. It's a very strange system. Then there's the reality that the prince usually chooses, you know, whoever he wants to govern. And then again, they use that governing power to tip the scales in elections 
adding further to Ferdinand's ability to really guide and dominate Bulgaria's politics. And this is precisely what happened in the 1908 election. The Liberal Democratic Party that Ferdinand had recently put in charge won in a landslide, winning 54% of the popular vote and nearly 82% of all the seats in the legislature. The People's Party, which again dominated in the last election, won about 10% and only actually ultimately got 3% of the seats in the National Assembly. The Broad and Narrow Socialists participated separately for the first time in the elections, but they only won less than 2% between them and failed to win a single seat in the National Assembly. So while union organization and labor agitation were undoubtedly on the rise, at this point that is not translating into electoral success for the left. Just as interesting was the fact that the Bulgarian Agrarian National Union actually came in second between those two parties, winning just under 15% of the popular vote. This was massively helped by the fact that a poor harvest in 1907 had pushed more peasants towards political participation. You know, times are tough, they wanted something done about it. But even more importantly, in the five years since the previous election, the agrarian party had seen a man by the name of Alexander Stambuliski gradually consolidating power within the organization and trying to turn it into a more effective political force with a clear ideological and political platform behind it. So, now I suppose this is as good a time as any for me to explain who Stambuliski was. You may recall I wrote my master's thesis on his political ideology, uh, and actually I think it's his great nephew is a listener and who I've met a few times, so hey there, shout out to you. And yeah, all this to say, this is a guy I've spent years of my life studying and I'm rather excited to talk about him after nearly 10 years of doing this podcast. So here we go. Born in 1879, just Months after the establishment of the Principality of Bulgaria, Alexander Stambuliski grew up in a town near Pazarjik in central Bulgaria. Now, I find it quite amusing that his surname actually originated from his father's visits to Istanbul, gaining the name Stambuliski, like eh, the, you know, the Stambul guy, which evolved into the family's formal name, which gives some insight into how, you know, tough before about, uh, you know, largely in the 18th and 19th century, Bulgarians started to have formal family names, and a lot of them just came from, you know, someone's name, like Petko becoming Petkov, or, you know, Georgi becoming Georgiev. But occasionally it was also from your job, like, um, what's that, Kovachev, you know, which is like Smith. But occasionally a nickname came from just something interesting, like Stambuliski, or I know someone named Bivovelev, which comes from someone being kind of strong like a bull. So sometimes it's just a, a characteristic about the person that originates the family name, and I think Stambuliski has a pretty amusing one. Anyways. Stambuliski himself resisted the desires of his stepmother for him to just work the family land and instead went to secondary school in Ichtiman. He then went to a state agricultural school before being kicked out for participating in a political demonstration. Again, something we've talked about a lot here. From there, he studied winemaking in Pleven, and that's where he first got involved with the agrarian movement, though he would proudly produce wine on his own land for the rest of his life and you know, became a fan of viticulture. Anyway, Stambuliski was soon working for the agrarian newspaper, writing articles arguing that Bulgaria was wasting its money on its army and civil service, and essentially copying the West under the leadership of Ferdinand, instead of making investments that would actually improve the lives of, well, the living standards, you could say, of the Bulgarian people. Now, this would remain a kind of cornerstone of Stambuliski's political beliefs for the rest of his life. He soon married a teacher and actually moved to Germany to study philosophy and agronomy, 
though he was forced to return to Bulgaria before graduating because he contracted tuberculosis. At this point, he re-engaged with the agrarian movement and quickly rose to become its most prominent member. Now, you'll recall that previously, agrarian leaders really struggled to unite the movement under a single political platform, or frankly, even decide whether the movement should be political. Stambuliski's vision for the movement and the force of his personality helped the organization streamline and unite under a single program, helping it obtain the success I just mentioned in the 1908 elections. Now, of course, I'll have a picture of Stambuliski on the blog post accompanying this episode, which is linked in the description. But, you know, Stambuliski, you could say he, he was a true peasant, both in his background and in his heart. Misha Glenny described him as, quote, a barrel-chested farmer who possessed a rare ability to translate sharp rural wit into the language of political struggle, end quote. Indeed, throughout his career, Stambuliski would never abandon the outward appearance of his peasant origins. Instead, he wore it like a badge of honor, including in the way he spoke. His use of peasant sayings and the way he carried himself, again, made his origins proudly clear. And this was something very new in Bulgarian politics. Indeed, by 1910, just under 38% of Bulgaria's population were rural peasants, compared to only about 19% that lived in cities. But even those who lived in towns, well, for them, farming was by far the most common activity in the country. Most Bulgarians were farmers, at least even part-time. The irony, though, the irony that the agrarians were addressing was that this enormous rural peasant population was widely viewed with indifference at best and disdain at worst by the existing political parties. Again, something we saw with those increased the, the tithe that kind of really gave the agrarian movement its origins. It just originated by the fact that a lot of these parties just didn't think much about the peasants and were totally fine burdening them with enormous tax burdens without really considering the broader implications. So thus, a lot of them wanted to turn to the agrarians, a party which were explicitly kind of oriented towards their interests. Even the socialists, who ostensibly were, you know, the party of the people, the party of the downtrodden, uh, you know, they still held that Marxist view that peasants are essentially kind of backwards, that they are often sort of reactionaries because you know, traditional Marxism holds that industrialization and industrial workers, that's the way that society advances towards eventual capitalism and communism. And so, yeah, peasants are not a part of that. And, you know, it's why Marx, for example, thought that revolutions would break out in a place like Germany or the UK rather than Russia, because those were industrialized places and Russia was mostly farmers and peasants. Now, agrarians were finding success, not just by speaking to the peasants, but by actually addressing their concerns and showing that they could and should have a prominent place in running the country and creating real change on the ground for peasants, right? So, that was a big part of what Stambuliski tried to push the party towards. You know, not just talking a big talk about here are the policies we're going to enact, but even you know outside of political participation, having the agrarian party active on the ground in the in the villages, making real impacts. So, under Stambuliski's leadership, the local drujbi, these kind of local collective organizations, offered peasants life insurance as well as small stores where they could purchase things like agricultural equipment at better prices than they usually find elsewhere. They also opened reading rooms and offered cheap credit, so peasants could take out small loans to help them get through harvest time or to improve their farming practices. R.J. Crampton, in his book about Stambuliski, wrote how, quote, the advancements made by the credit cooperatives 
were one of the most important reasons for the improvement of living conditions between the turn of the century and the First World War. End quote. In other words, by offering peasants all these things on the ground, even without being in charge, right? The agrarians are, are not in government. They never have been in government. But the party's activities on the ground are already having a pretty substantial impact on peasant living conditions. So it's not surprising that they're starting to become fairly popular. But Stambuliski also created a rule that you could only stand for office as an agrarian candidate if you had been a party member for two years, which was later extended to five. This helped prevent the common practice that we've seen for many years, where people join and leave political parties kind of whenever it suits them as a way to get into the into office. Again, we've seen between elections, right, we have these enormous shifts in what parties people represent. And, you know, it's clear that lots and lots of people, you know, participate in, join, or back a political party only to just switch to the next one when they win because affiliating with the winning political party means it opens the door for a lot of, you know, benefits, jobs, uh, handouts, all this kind of stuff. So Stambuliski wanted to stop that. He wanted to make the agrarian party a much more stable, loyal, and focused party. And indeed, that helped. But also, you know, part of the reason this was Stambuliski's approach was that he viewed the entire existing political system and the parties within it with deep disdain, writing that they were, quote, useless lackeys of the palace, mere factions ready to sell out, to abase themselves for a mere mess of pottage, for the sake of office, end quote, before he went on to describe them as simply, quote, parasites on the body of the nation, end quote. Now, to be fair, Stambuliski had a bit of a point. You know, as we've seen, most of the parties weren't very devoted to a particular kind of ideology and were more focused on winning the favor of Ferdinand because this was by far the best way to get into government, and once you were in government, you could, you know, hire everyone, pay everyone, potentially have some corruption, you know, skim a little off the top. That was how you got stuff done. So, Stambuliski asserted that the agrarian party was not going to be a political party in the same sense that those others were. Again, the, you know, activities on the ground show that they were already quite different. Indeed, a year after the 1908 election, Stambuliski would publish a book arguing that people shouldn't even be represented by political parties built around kind of loose ideologies at best, but that they should actually be represented by organizations which represent so-called estates, which you can kind of think as like work categories. Stambuliski defined seven, agrarian, artisanal, wage earning, entrepreneurial, commercial, and bureaucratic. In other words, each of these kind of economic work categories, each of those groups within society should be represented by organizations focused on achieving their basically economic interests. Now, this is because regardless of social origins, Stambuliski pointed out that people doing the same kind of work had a lot of the same interests in society. But he further argued that the agrarian estate should be the most prominent because it was the largest and because it produced the food that everyone needed to survive. And, you know, it's easy to see, uh, it's easy to kind of make that argument, right? The, the farmers are more important than, say, the white-collar workers because they produce the food everyone needs. Of course, you know, that's not exactly how economics or society works, but it's an easy argument to make. So, you know, clearly, by contrast, Stambuliski disliked bureaucrats, soldiers, and the royal family because he saw them as people who didn't really produce anything of real value. Now, the agrarian program Stambuliski pioneered was at times compared to socialism, but 
you know, anyone who's familiar with socialism knows that what I'm describing is quite a bit different, actually. Echoing the attitude of most peasants, it defended private property fiercely, arguing that it was essential to giving people dignity and a sense of purpose. Yet, the develop- it also kind of argued that the development of society required collective action. So there are areas where, you know, at, where, where people should join together, like in things like cooperatives, and frankly, that's how governments work, right? Governments are collective organizations, but that this collective action shouldn't come at the expense of private property. Crampton writes how, quote, this would lead to a system in which communities work together for the common good, but in which the constituent families would continue to own their property. Work would be collective, but ownership would remain private. A communal consciousness would not tolerate any individual having too much or too little property. Egalitarianism was thus the inevitable result of communal consciousness. For this reason, the agrarian movement called for the redistribution of property, taking land from the church, the crown, and the state, and handing it to the landless and those who did not have enough to support themselves and their families. End quote. So, again, you can kind of see the interesting, you know, why agrarianism is kind of described as this, this third way. But anyway, so I'll, I'll stop ranting about agrarian ideology. Again, I, I spent like two years uh, deep diving into this, so it's a bit hard not to ramble, but I hope that was interesting. The main point, the main takeaway here, is to understand the basics of what this new united and focused agrarian party was all about and appreciate how the ineffectual agrarian party of the past was now gone. Instead, again, the agrarians were united, disciplined, and finally operating under a single clear ideological platform with a single leader who was you know, pretty skilled at communications and organization. But we'll have to see in the future what all that turns into. Now, getting back to those elections, though, Stathelova asked the question, quote, can we blame the monarch for understanding the psychology of Bulgarian leaders and explaining it so skillfully, end quote, before going on to explain the thinking that Ferdinand's choice of Malinov for prime minister, writing, quote, the more aggressive tone of the Democratic Party and its ties to the activists of the MRO suited the prince. He was not particularly interested in the party's power, all of the Bulgarian parties had more or less equal influence, and their rivalry allowed him to manipulate them and to replace them easily whenever he wished. Geshov knew that the monarch's perfidious game involved personal motives as well. Ferdinand could not forgive the head of the People's Party, i.e. Geshov, for being wealthy and therefore more independent. End quote. So, there you get a little bit of insights into why this election turned out the way it did, why Ferdinand chose the Democratic Party as the new one to run Bulgaria. Essentially, you know, he wanted a little bit closer ties to the MRO so he could keep an eye on them and control them somewhat, and he wanted a party he felt he could control. And because the People's Party was now run by Geshov, who, as you know, is the wealthiest Bulgarian alive at this point because of the huge inheritance, he is a bit harder to control, and that is something Ferdinand does not like. So, with Ferdinand remaining firmly in charge of Bulgaria's politics, Stambuliski and the agrarians were indeed challenging that dominance, at least verbally. But still, for now, it's mostly verbally. But Ferdinand was far more focused, for now, on international affairs. As I mentioned, Austria-Hungary, backed by Germany, was now pushing hard to extend its influence into the Balkans, and this was pushing the traditional enemies of Great Britain and Russia closer together. In June of this year, 
The two monarchs, Edward VII and Nicholas II, met and agreed to work together to pressure the Ottomans to enact reforms in Macedonia, which again, they just, you know, basically Austria-Hungary had just withdrawn its pressure to do so. This meeting led many Ottoman officers stationed in Thessaloniki to believe that the Sultan would soon be pressured into giving up Macedonia altogether in the face of united pressure from the United Kingdom and Russia. As a result, these soldiers led a mutiny against the Sultan in favor of preserving the Ottoman state as it was during July of 1908. These officers were members of the Committee of Union and Progress, a faction within the broader Young Turk movement which sought to revitalize the Ottoman Empire by returning it to a constitutional monarchy and enacting many liberal reforms. In particular, they wanted a return to the first, and thus far only, Ottoman constitution that had been in force for just two years from 1876 to 1878. As those officers convinced the head of the Third Army to which they belonged to support them and assassinated another major military figure which might have been able to stop them, pressure on the Sultan quickly grew. Within just weeks, they had been joined by army units throughout the empire, and before the month was up, Sultan Abdul Hamid II finally gave in and restored the Ottoman constitution. The Committee of Union and Progress now became a major power in the Ottoman government, forcing the Sultan to share power with them under that constitution. Interestingly enough, Jan Sandansky quickly published a manifesto in support of this revolution, even though it had occurred in part to strengthen the empire and resist reforms or independence from Macedonia, which is supposedly what Sandansky kind of wanted. So this may seem odd at first, but Sandansky had been in contact with the Young Turks for years and supported their multi-ethnic vision of the Ottoman state, viewing it as the best way to further his own goals as well. Remember, you know, many, many episodes in the past, he talked about Ottomanism, you know, this, this goal to create a kind of multi-ethnic, multi-religious Ottoman empire where all the people within it would be equal and through doing this to potentially get everyone to actually be loyal to the Ottoman state and to support the Ottoman state and allow it to kind of exist as it was without, you know, shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And so, yeah, this, this actually kind of aligned with some of the socialistic views of Sandansky and the left wing of the MRO who wanted to make a kind of Balkan federation, again, a, a multi-confessional, multi-ethnic state. So that's kind of where the connection comes in. So yeah, Sandansky and his supporters had been toying with the idea of a Balkan federation and had concluded that because an autonomous Macedonia would de facto be dominated by Bulgarians and because this would never be accepted by Serbia and Greece, therefore autonomy for Macedonia was best achieved as a part of a wider set of reforms within the Ottoman Empire, reforms which the young Turks could make happen. So yeah, it's not super easy to understand, but that, that's kind of the, the rationale here. Sandansky met with members of the Young Turks soon after the revolution and proclaimed, quote, Today, all of us, Turks, Bulgarians, Greeks, Albanians, Jews, and others, we have all sworn that we will work for our dear fatherland and will be inseparable, and we will all sacrifice ourselves for it, and, if necessary, we will even shed our blood. Enlightenment is the surest guarantee of the well-being of a country. Therefore, open schools and enlighten yourselves. And we will demand from the Sultan that which is necessary for the amelioration of the state and the population. And if he gives us no satisfaction, we will demand it with force. And we will shout with one voice, down with the Sultan, down with the Sultan, down with the Sultan. End quote. Now, as you may have guessed, 
this rosy view of the revolu- of the revolution that was unfolding uh, and which he believed would finally end Ottoman oppression and bring in a new era of kind of enlightened equality and development, uh, paving the way for this socialistic future under a Balkan federation was, I'm going to say optimistic. You know, reading Marsha McDermott's account, you'd think that this is like the second coming of Christ. I mean, it's she spends a lot of pages talking about just how wonderful everyone thought the Young Turk Revolution was, how excited the whole left wing of the MRO was. I, I think their belief in, you know, what that revolution would mean for the Macedonians is, again, optimistic at best. But it's important to note that Sandansky and his faction supporting the Young Turks also created many enemies for him, even within that same faction. However, the men who had just won themselves so much power within the declining Ottoman Empire had no idea the events that they had just set in motion. Indeed, within months, the borders of the Ottoman Empire and the Balkans would indeed change, though not in the way the rebellious army officers had feared. Next time, we'll cover the aftermath of the Young Turk Revolution those border changes, and how all this sets the stage for the bloody events that are by now just over the horizon. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, check out bghistorypodcast.com for lots more information on this and every episode, and I'll catch you in the next one.